Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording September 29th, 2021, we're talking about climate emergency preparedness and response and the role of defense in those efforts in Canada with Brigadier General Jeff Smith, Director of Operations at the Canadian Joint Operations Command, Dr. Laura Shaloner, Senior Operations Officer for the Government of Canada at Public Safety Canada, Craig Stewart, Vice President, Federal Affairs at the Insurance Bureau of Canada, and Adam McDonald, who is a PhD candidate at Dalhousie University. This discussion is made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Minds Program. So welcome, uh, General Craig, Laura, and Adam. Um, oh, Craig, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to you as, as the person that helps uh, people uh, put a price on the different risks to which they are exposed. Uh, can you provide just a, a high-level overview of, of the climate risk Canada is facing and their costs as we, we sit here having this conversation heading into the fall of 2021? Um, so I represent uh, property and casualty insurers across the country. Uh, those are the insurers uh, for your homes, your automobiles, and businesses in Canada. Um, uh, what we uh, and, and to start off with, what we can expect, I'm actually going to uh, quote uh, Natural Resources Canada's uh, Canada's Ch Changing Climate Report, which is probably the foremost report we have on the topic of what we can expect. Um, Canada is warming at twice the rate of much of the rest of the world. Uh, um, we are expecting uh, greater, uh, you know, increased heat events. And we'll get, we'll talk a bit about more about those later. Um, but also in Western Canada, we're looking at uh, increased drought conditions, increased wildfires in British Columbia and across the boreal forest. Um, increased winter precipitation, um, and uh, which means increased snowpack, partic particularly in Manitoba, Quebec, and Ontario. Uh, increased um, precipitation events, uh, you know, those sudden deluges of, of rainfall that can come. Uh, those will occur across the country, but will be particularly, uh, um, we'll see more frequency, particularly in Atlantic Canada. Um, and, uh, and, and for flooding, um, increased uh, spring melt of, of snowpack uh, due to precipitation events and rapid warming in springtime uh, in uh, Quebec and Ontario. So, so that's what we can expect uh, just for, as a, from a broad brush. That's what uh, the, uh, the NRCAN report told us. Um, uh, but as far as cost, what we're already seeing in uh, in this country uh, are essentially, uh, from an insurance perspective, we were paying out about 400 million annually in insured losses, property losses, back uh, about 15 years ago. That has uh, quintupled. Uh, we're now seeing over 2 billion uh, as an annual average in, in payouts of property claims, and that's for the insurance industry alone, um, and doesn't, uh, doesn't factor in disaster relief uh, the cost of emergency response, of course, or the cost of, of infrastructure. What can we expect? Well, uh, timing is good. Uh, the, just today, um, uh, the uh, Canadian Institute of Climate Choice has released a report on what we can expect by mid-century and by the end of the century in terms of increased costs of climate change. And the numbers that they came up with by mid-century are $6 billion uh, annually in terms of uh, damage to housing, uh, and, uh, and other built infrastructure, $5 billion uh, a year uh, in damage from flooding alone uh, to roads and railways, and $3 billion uh, uh, a year to electrical 
electrical infrastructure, including transmission lines from uh, heat and extreme rainfall. Uh, and that's just the built infrastructure. Uh, the human cost uh, expected um, are, you know, health costs essentially $9 billion a year in terms of uh, health, uh, annual health uh, costs uh, to, uh, uh, as a result of, of extreme weather. Um, and, and that doesn't capture at all the most important cost, which is in terms of human lives. Uh, we were reminded of the stark impact when uh, about 570 people died in one heat event alone this past summer in June in British Columbia. Um, so uh, in mid-century, just, you know, 2050, we hear a lot about 2050, mid-century seems to be a target date uh, that we hear a lot, whether it's emissions reduction or in this case in the report, these costs that I've, I've mentioned, uh, it's not far off. Um, 30 years ago today, uh, Nirvana released Nevermind, uh, that album, uh, and Silence of the Lambs was one of the top movies at the box office. So, uh, so when you think of it in those terms, at least for someone my age, 30 years isn't, isn't that long. Thanks, Dave. Okay, I'm gonna have a hard time getting uh, some of those tracks from that uh, album out of my head as we get going here. Um, uh, Lord, I wanna to come to you uh, and get you to talk a little bit about how, as these things play out, um, the federal government uh, often has a role. I think that there's something that prior to maybe the last year and a half ago, the whole process of requesting federal assistance wasn't nearly as well known as it is now uh, because these requests are coming, you know, on a bi or tri-weekly basis almost, it seems. Uh, but can you just kind of set the discussion to, to walk through uh, how it is that the federal government comes to be involved in some type of disaster uh, relief exercise? How does that process of requesting federal assistance uh, work? And then how does the process work through to, to determine what help is offered and what kind of type of help that might be? Yeah, happy to. So in Canada, we have a bottom-up approach to our emergency response, and it's the same approach for requesting assistance. So, um, at, you know, when we have local authorities that are responding, when they exceed their capacity, they'll reach out to the community. The community, when they're overwhelmed, will reach out to the province or territory. And then when the province or territory is overwhelmed and can't manage the emergency on their own, that's when they'll submit a request for federal assistance. And in simple terms, the request for federal assistance is essentially a ministerial correspondence from the province or territory to the Minister of Public Safety. So the nitty gritty of how the process actually works is that when a province or territory suspects that they're going to need assistance, they'll actually reach out to the Public Safety Regional Office and our regional office will work with them um, to identify the needs, to really evaluate what their needs are and really understand those needs and communicate them that up to Public Safety GOC, the Government Operations Centre. They'll also do that due diligence portion in that conversation where they're going to confirm with the province if they've really exhausted all of their resources and have they looked at um, other options such as commercial or private um, resources that may be available to support their emergency needs. So once that due diligence step is complete, the province or territory will submit a ministerial correspondence uh, to the Minister of Public Safety. It's the Minister of Public Safety because the Minister of Public Safety under the Emergency Management Act is responsible for coordinating assistance. Um, so at that point, the Minister of Public Safety will also share that email or that letter with um, my group, the Government Operations Center, and we'll look at it from a national perspective and prioritize that request against other requests that we may have received. So we'll look at the hazard, we'll look at uh, the feasibility of providing that support, we'll look at 
um, the dem demographic reach. We'll look at the regional balance across Canada of that request and other requests that may be uh, taken into consideration. At the same time that we're undergoing that prioritization exercise, we're gonna be reaching out to our federal partners to see what assistance is available, what capabilities are available, and in what capacity those capabilities can be provided to the province or territory. So once we've secured the assistance required to meet the needs of the province or territory, we'll respond to the province or territory with a ministerial correspondence from the Minister of Public Safety, essentially confirming that yes, we will support your request and here is how we can support it. Um, so important to note, as you already mentioned, CAF is, and you know, the Canadian Armed Forces are a force of last resort. And we will go to every effort to ensure that all other resources are put forth first before we even go and approach CAF to ask if they have the capability or capacity. Uh, what we are seeing is that often CAF is the only uh, federal entity that has the resource available to support the province or territory. And so they will be asked to support, um, but we really do try and ensure that they are a force of last resort and that all other efforts are put forth first. So um, in terms of the types of support, it really depends on the emergency. Um, we've seen you know, requests for simple logistical support, command and control support. It can be a request for transportation, or it can be health human resources, or as simple as boots on the ground to do sandbagging efforts, et cetera. And it really just depends on the emergency. So I hope that answers the question, David, back to you. If I can just ask you for, for one uh, additional sure. point on this, uh, we're seeing now that the, the Red Cross is being put forward as in terms yes. of some types of response, um, I guess, in a COVID context. Is that a, a formal understanding or is this a sort of a specific to the current environment in which we live now uh, dynamic? It's a bit of both, actually. So uh, we have a contribution agreement within public safety to support the Canadian Red Cross for COVID-19 efforts. Um, and I'll discuss later, but we are developing a humanitarian workforce, which the Canadian Red Cross and other NGOs will be a part of. Okay, great. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit specifically about um, CAF responses in a domestic context related to these types of emergencies. But before we, we get to that, Adam, I'm just gonna ask you to situate, because you've, you've written about, um, uh, sort of a wider set of uh, Canadian defense responses to domestic operations um, uh, recently, uh, particularly within a, a COVID-19 context. So I guess, could you uh, just help situate that conversation uh, by talking about the, the recent demand on the provision of services from the military in a domestic context in, in Canada and the ones that have been broadly speaking taking place on Canadian soil to frame the rest of the conversation? So uh, the military has, has talked about uh, possesses kind of three attributes that make it an ideal partner sometimes to be used in domestic emergency response. One, it has organization and command control capabilities. Two, it has specific assets and resources, specifically along logistics, communication, strategic lift, things like that. And third, although it's an asset, it really is something I think quite unique. It has a big body of people that if they're not doing other things that they can be employed. And this sometimes leads to, again, the more kind of layperson tasks about sandbagging, uh, and snow removal, but it can also be requests for very specific technical support, engineering, logistics, and medical. And what's important to realize there is that the military, those, cap those capabilities are meant to serve the military. So we don't have a medical response per se that is meant to, other than DART and, and some other little um, organizations, meant to really uh, support others. It's really to serve the CAF. 
So what we've seen in COVID, and I think the, the big point I would like to stress is that provision of service is a very large and growing uh, field of asks. And I think a lot of people think, oh, we just need some soldiers to help sandbag and uh, snow removal, maybe help uh, forest fires. And I think that it really underestimates how complex these emergencies are and the level of te technical expertise and skill needed, not just within the military, but within uh, governments and society as we move towards this altered world. So what we've seen with uh, COVID is we, at the beginning, the military helped out with repatriating Canadians from overseas at the beginning, setting up quarantine sites for Canadians and things like that. The establishment of a 24,000 person, basically COVID standby force uh, through Operation Laser, uh, which was pre-deployed throughout the country um, in order to help if there was assistance required. Uh, we saw um, also a number of uh, requests for uh, the military specifically via the Canadian Rangers to help uh, local communities, specifically indigenous and uh, remote communities in the north to help with setting up um, uh, certain medical uh, facilities. The biggest thing I think a lot of Canadians will remember is when the military sent a very sizable contribution to long-term care homes. I don't think anybody would have predicted that the military would have gone in to long-term care homes. We had 7,500 soldiers go in uh, to Quebec and Ontario long-term care homes doing a number of uh, general duties and supporting the, uh, the staff that was completely overwhelmed in those places. Then we moved, uh, once vaccines were starting to get developed, the military began what's called Operation Vector, which was to support um, the uh, movement of vaccines from suppliers to within Canada and also a little bit of strategic lift within Canada itself and making sure that the vaccines were distributed um, according to federal plans and uh, the Federal Health Agency of Canada to the provinces and territories. And then we saw continuing support requests um, for, for example, helping with vaccine clinic administrations uh, in places like Nova Scotia um, and continued uh, support during all this time as well for um, climate change uh, and environmental disaster response as well. And we saw uh, certain operations there. And finally, um, uh, you know, the situation in Alberta is quite dire. And again, we're starting to see that civilian agencies and capacities are being completely overrun um, and the military may be asked um, to support uh, again. So it's been this growing, not just number, but it's, it's really surprising and shocking the extent of the different type of requests that have come in. And that leads to questions about, does the military develop capability to meet demand or does it continue to try to carve capacity from existing capability to support as needed and when? And um, so it's, it's been a really growing uh, increase. And again, it's COVID and it's a pandemic and there is an expectation of course that all uh, available resources and assets would be supporting of it, but it may create a bit of a potentially expectation that the military is going to increasingly um, support these type of um, domestic emergencies. Thanks, Adam. Uh, so, Laura, I'm going to come back to you. Um, in terms of expectations, uh, what are you and your colleagues at Public Safety anticipating and expecting that climate change will do in terms of creating future emergencies that will then result in likely requests by other levels of government uh, for federal assistance? Yeah, so, I mean, as Craig already mentioned, in the past 25 years within public safety, we're seeing an increase in intensity and frequency of hazards across Canada climate change being the major driver of that. Um, as a result, public safety is seeing an increase in uh, requests from provinces and territories, both for uh, financial support and also for federal resources. We've seen a large draw on the disaster finance assistance arrangement program um, in the past six years. Um, and I just 
you know, one specific thing that we are seeing impact uh, the request for federal assistance is um, concurrent events in multiple jurisdictions. So um, we're seeing simultaneous events. Uh, typically provinces and territories for cyclical events can actually support each other. But now because we're seeing concurrent events across Canada, they don't have that capacity to support each other anymore. And so they're relying on federal assistance um, to fill in that gap as well. So we're seeing that increase. Um, and looking forward, you know, we're expecting to see that continue uh, without any mitigation efforts in place. You know, that will just continue. We will see more requests for federal assistance. Okay, thanks. Uh, so, General, to bring you into the conversation, uh, as you're sitting there, I, I think literally at, at CJOC with the, the backdrop uh, behind you, um, what are you folks anticipating in terms of the demand signal that you'll get as part of your potential share of the response uh, to these types of, of uh, emergencies? I guess, and can you get you a little, expand a little bit, um, Adam sort of laid out some of the, the broader swath, the types of responses, but what are you anticipating in terms of the potential, uh, the magnitude of what you're gonna have to respond with, um, the types of people, uh, give a bit of a sense of what you're looking um, and, and reflecting on the last couple of years and then casting your eye forward about what you're likely to end up doing, General. Yeah, thanks David. And thanks for the opportunity to, to speak today. Um, Adam, I think did a great job of wrapping up kind of, uh, what we've seen over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I had to look back uh, over his, you know, a bit of history though over the last 30 years. And in, in the 20 years from 1990 to 2010, I think we had eight um, deployments where we actually, uh, you know, deployed in support of some type of climate emergency. In the last 10 years, we've done 34. So we went from an average of one every two to three years to about four a year now. And that trend line is continually increasing. So I think what we're seeing is more and more uh, compounding of multiple uh, crises at the same time. And, and this summer in the heat wave in British Columbia is a great example of that. Um, the extreme heat uh, greatly increased the, the, the forest fire risk. And then we saw the subsequent fires from that. But at the same time, it also melted the snowpack in the mountains so much faster that we had flooding in Yukon um, that was associated with it. So, you know, as as, this, as these kind of uh, emergencies kind of keep happening, what we're seeing is more and more concurrency. And as that heat moved a little bit further east, then Northern Ontario in particular uh, had a lot of wildfires. So we had to do a bunch of evacuations out of some of those remote isolated communities in Northern Ontario. So we had concurrent, um, you know, soldiers doing sandbagging, flooding control in Yukon, while we had soldiers doing firefighting in British Columbia as well as aircraft supporting them, and then other aircraft doing evacuations out of Northern Ontario to bring them, you know, those communities that were in danger out. So certainly the trend is increasing and, and it's not likely to change, frankly. So some of our specific concerns going forward are a lot of those remote and isolated communities um, that, that previously haven't been as at risk. You know, uh, if, if you ever spent any time in Northern Manitoba or, or Saskatchewan, there's a lot of water up there but there's also a lot of forest. And, and uh, when we see that starting to dry out much earlier in the year, much faster than it normally does, those, those remote isolated communities that typically only have road access during the winter when there's ice roads or only, are only fly in and fly out are being threatened more often. I mean, personally, I think it was back in, uh, in 2013, um, I, I led an evacuation in Wollaston Lake in Northern Saskatchewan. It was in that season where uh, normally, uh, people in the community could get in their boats and, and uh, get to the road, 
well, the, the, the lake was still frozen over, but it wasn't frozen enough to use the ice road. So the only way out was by air. So I think we're gonna see more and more of those types of emergencies in places where traditionally we haven't, um, not necessarily just focused on where the population is. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, we, we have quite a robust response capability. And, and frankly, for CAF members, it's one of the most rewarding things we do. You know, if, if Canadians are in trouble, we're gonna go out there, we'll be there for them and we're gonna help. Um, but, but the challenge is, when we do that, it, it causes an impact on force generation and readiness and, and other things. Um, so while we're happy to go do those operations, it, it can be distracting for the department in, in that uh, the bandwidth that's used up to focus on those types of operations then suddenly isn't available to deal with uh, adversaries like China or Russia or you know events going in the Middle East and other places. So. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll talk a bit about more about that later on if I get an opportunity. But so, so to kind of go back to what are we seeing right now and what are we trying to do? Um, certainly what we have is a standing operations order for domestic operations. And it, 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 frankly, it works pretty well. We have some high readiness units, you know, that are across the country, uh, varying capabilities, ships, aircraft, soldiers that are ready to go. Um, and when we commit those, then we look at regenerating uh, you know, another force for whatever comes next. So it might be, you know, regular force troops that are, have done some elementary firefighter training. So they go out as, as level one firefighters that will, that will backfill the provincial or, or territorial or federal firefighters that are doing uh, the, the more dangerous work. Um, and then sometimes we can backfill those with reserve units once we've had time to kind of mobilize them and, and, and work through that. Um, but we are missing medical capability. And that's one thing that, that Adam talked to Typically, we've only looked at medical capability to support the Canadian forces, with the exception of the disaster assistance response team. Um, and so that's something that we're seriously looking at now, uh, given our history with uh, what's happened through op operations laser and vector support to the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, if we look at things like uh, earthquakes or other significant uh, fire areas where there isn't necessarily free medical capacity within the, the province or territory to deal with, that's something that we uh, you know, we're starting to talk about it. It's a very difficult capability to generate and maintain, um, but certainly we're looking at that. Um, the, the last thing that I wanted to mention is that it's been a bit of a, a, a side benefit of COVID, if you, if you could call it uh, anything to do with COVID a benefit. But typically on an average year, we get about a dozen requests for assistance for varying things, whether it's climate or, or other, uh, other things. This year, um, we've averaged, I think, in the like 70 to 80 requests for assistance. So, so a lot of those have been COVID related or vaccine related that, that we've had to deal with. But what it's meant is that a relationship between our regional joint task forces, and there's six of them across the country, you know, North, Pacific, West, Central, East, and, and uh, Atlantic, um, those, those regional joint task forces have, have been able to work more closely with their associated provinces and territories. So, so the, the command and control and the, the, the sensing function for us to understand whether there's going to be an ask and to allow us to prepare for it is actually, um, we've exercised that a lot with, with COVID. And what, you know, as, as Laura explained, the request for assistance process, what that allows us to do is have discussions at the provincial and regional level to kind of understand, you know, right now we're talking with Alberta and Saskatchewan about uh, the fourth wave outbreak there. And that's being done at the at that provincial and regional level that then helps inform the discussions that, you know, requests for assistance that do come up into public safety and the federal discussion that goes around it. 
So in some ways that, you know, uh, going through such a large volume of requests for assistance has helped smooth the process and help improve the, you know, the coordination between those uh, provincial and territorial and fed federal uh, entities. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Happy to go into more detail as required. For 111 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with our allies around the world. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada, and that tradition lives on today. Our sponsor, Irving Shipbuilding, will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The CSC is based on the Type 26 Global Combat Ship Design, which is currently under construction in the United Kingdom and Australia. Canada's CSC will also be equipped with the Aegis Combat System, extending Canada's interoperability with six allied nations around the world. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. Craig, I'm going to ask you to build off uh, something that General talked on about um, them having some concern uh, about having to do uh, sort of similar types of the, the missions or operations in new places. I guess for the for the insurance industry, as you're looking at the implications across Canada, uh, as it are you looking at um, increased severity or increased frequency of the same types of things in the same places? So you know, same parts of the the country with river systems, they periodically flood. Um, you know, the interior of BC is seems like it's always on fire. Is, is that as a bigger concern as new events in other places, or, or where do you kind of balancing uh, uh, the assessment of risk from your point of view? Yeah, great question. Um, we. I would say both. Um, we are uh, for um, fluvial flood risk. So for lakefront, uh, riverfront flood risk, um, we, uh, you know, this is predictable, uh, predictable risk. Uh, we're watching those areas closely, trying to improve our modeling in those areas. Wildfire, we can expect that wildfire will occur almost annually in British Columbia and in parts of the boreal forest. But at the same time, uh, we know that intense downfall, intense precipitation events can actually occur anywhere in the country. Uh, and so we need to be ready for those as well. One important point I'd like to drive home is uh, we've been terrible overall at uh, predicting uh, these events. The, the, um, the heat uh, event that happened in British Columbia uh, broke the, our, our meteorological services modeling cap capability. Uh, that, that event was far beyond what was predicted or could have been predicted by our models. The Fort McMurray wildfire event uh, was not predicted by our best insurance models. It was much worse. Uh, so if anything, we've been underestimating the risk uh, and, and we need to uh, improve our capacity so that we're more accurately measuring the risk uh, and predicting it. Uh, and if anything, you know, overestimating the risk rather than underestimating the risk. So, General, I'll come back to you and touch on, I guess you to expand on a couple of the things that, that you, you touched on um, to, that gets into kind of the implications uh, of these operations, these types of missions for, for the, the CAF. Uh, one was the, the piece about concurrency, and I know that that's a big thing that drives um, uh, all kinds of force planning discussions, and that's something that's been talked about uh, significantly uh, in the last several years in terms of the kind of the breadth of the things that the, the CAF is expected to do. Um, but if you're into a dynamic where you're potentially doing uh, more concurrent operations just within a kind of a, dom a domestic dom disaster response scenario, um, uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, and I guess it, it gets you to touch on a little bit more on, on some of the 
you know, it's usually called in the jargon, the lower density types of uh, responses. And um, you mentioned medical. Um, I, I think I'd hazard a guess that you aren't the only entity in, in Canada or around the world right now that's looking to potentially plus up some of its medical responses. Um, uh, so, how, you know, what does that mean in terms of the actual ability to deliver on some of these things um, in, in terms of the you've got increased demands and um, increased demands, particularly some of the, the things that are more difficult to actually have in the first place and produce. Um, what does that mean as you look ahead? So, yeah, broadly, um, you know, as I mentioned, we, we've got forces on standby. We, we, you know, we plan for forest fire season. We plan for flood season. We, we plan those because we know they happen every year, as, as Craig mentioned. Um, but we typically don't have a lot of units on standby. So there will be one or two high readiness units, uh, you know, spread across the, the country. And once those are committed, then we need to, to go to other units. And, and the challenge that we run into is that on, on a very short response, um, we, we tend to re rely on our regular force units, you know, that are sitting in those, those combat brigades. Um, and, and they're typically already in a training plan for something else. You know, they're preparing to deploy to Latvia or to Ukraine or, or Iraq or, you know, wherever we happen to have operations going. And, and so the challenge is if we start to tap into those high readiness units too much, it impacts our ability to conduct other operations around the planet. Um, you know, the, the flip side of that is using our reservists, but generally speaking, their day job isn't in uniform. You know, they're, they're people that are out in the community doing other important jobs. And typically because of the type of people they are, they are volunteer firefighters or, you know, they, they have a wide variety of things that they're doing. So in some cases, if, if the if the climate or the emergency is happening in their own community, they may already be engaged. Uh, in various capacities. So our ability to pull them out of their day job, to put them in uniform, to go do things like fail sandbags or do firefighting um, uh, takes a bit of time. Um, so, so that said that, you know, that concurrency challenge, uh, one of the things we've looked at is, uh, and, and in particular this spring, when we looked at the kind of the confluence of, of uh, COVID uh, second or third wave hitting at the same time we're doing a massive vaccination rollout with public health agency at the same time that we are hitting the beginning of fire season and, and you know, spring flooding season, uh, we looked at particularly how can we prepare additional forces to be on standby to, to be ready to deploy. So we did that, we, we put additional forces on standby. Um, luckily, we didn't really have to use them um, to the extent that, that we, you know, we were prepared to do, but th that, that's part of our, our routine planning uh, that we do. Um, you know, the, the second part of your question on low density um, is a much tougher nut to crack. Um, like I said, you know, my desire as the operations person um, is really to have, you know, as many doctors as I need to be able to, you know, to respond to every request that we have. Um, our ability to force generate those is pretty limited. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that, that I'm not sure uh, most people are aware of, but because of the COVID lockdowns that we had, it, it caused a significant stop on a lot of the basic training and ongoing force generation training that we did. So for, for months, we didn't train uh, hardly anyone. And the challenge is we now have this bit of uh, demographic hole that's working through the Canadian forces where we're already short, you know, on the, on the order of uh, thousands of people. Um, and we're trying to train people to backfill those. So that requirement to continue doing that force generation training is, is, is even more critical now. And, if we end up continuing to use Canadian forces on, on domestic operations, that impacts our ability to respond and, and our readiness. And ultimately, if, if we look at um, climate change not being just focused in Canada, 
but around the globe, um, it causes other impacts, right? Um, uh, great power competition, we see more activity in the Arctic. We, we see more uh, like leisure activity where we might have to then go do search and rescue or those types of things. Um, we see um, more instability in developing countries where they don't have assured access to food and water and, and all those other things that have climate impacts, which means a greater draw on militaries in general and, and the Canadian forces to go do those types of missions. So if, you know, if we end up using the capacity of the Canadian forces to, to respond to things at home, that reduces our ability to do things out in, in the rest of the world that, that, you know, that we're also here to do. So, so that's one of the challenges that uh, you know, we see it's difficult to get around, um, but you know, it's, it's one of the things that we're gonna have to deal with. And you know, planning is, it can only get you so far if you don't have the force structure to support it. Laura, as, as public safety is looking ahead, um, what, what is the trajectory for resources across the rest of the federal government in terms of uh, if, if in five or 10 years from now, uh, if you're, so you or a subsequent colleague is doing your job, what's the, what's the kind of the, uh, the size of the toolbox uh, that the federal government is going to have to potentially respond and, and what are the different types of tools you're anticipating being in it? Is it going to look uh, more or less the same, just bigger, um, different, uh, different abilities to respond in different ways? Or, or what are you anticipating in terms of being the, within the, the wider set of federal resources that could be brought to bear? Yeah, so in terms of federal resources, we are doing, you know, full after action reviews of COVID-19 and how uh, the federal government responded and we're gonna look into um, where our gaps are for our capabilities um, and then you know, start building on those gaps to ideally not always draw on the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, one specific thing that the government of Canada is doing right now, public safety specifically, um, is looking into building um, a stronger humanitarian workforce. So, uh, the government of Canada has already invested a significant amount of money into the Canadian Red Cross and other non-government organizations in building and maintaining that humanitarian workforce to provide surge capacity, um, mainly for COVID-19, but also for other large-scale emergencies. Um, so our next goal at Public Safety is to build a more sustainable humanitarian workforce that doesn't have to build up from scratch for each emergency so that they can provide a fast, scalable relief um, to key sectors and different professions. And ideally, that will help us uh, reduce the, the burden on CAF and have another source of capacity or federal, not federal resource, but another source of resource that we can turn to when emergencies are taking place. Craig, same question to you essentially, but it brought it out, uh, not just in terms of the federal government, but uh, what is the trajectory of current government resources across different levels um, as you're looking ahead? And how are you folks assessing that relative to your forecasted uh, need going uh, going forward? And, and if there is a Delta, um, I guess, you know, is there any thoughts about um, how that can be resolved? Does it simply need more government uh, or are there kind of more uh, potential to have government-to-government uh, -government relations outside of, of, of Canada or, or with private actors? Thanks, David. The, um, so first of all, we work really closely um, uh, with Public Safety Canada and have been really impressed uh, over, uh, frankly, the last five years, the, the expansion of uh, capacity attention uh, to, to the, these issues. Uh, it started uh, back when Minister Goodell was, was Minister of Public Safety and has continued since. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going to just highlight a few key items. One, 
uh, exploration of strategic relocation. How do we put uh, uh, programs in place to relocate Canadians out of harm's way, especially in places like flood, high-risk floodplains where we, we know they're going to flood over and over again. Uh, and it's just a burden, frankly, uh, to the emergency response community, et cetera, uh, to, to have them there where they shouldn't be. Uh, there's a task force uh, currently looking at that. That's going to report out in the spring. Um, the uh, second one I'm going to highlight is uh, uh, retrofit programs. Uh, we, you know, in this country, uh, we've had, uh, you know, there's been announcements over the last year on energy efficiency retrofit programs, everything from community buildings uh, to, to residences. Um, uh, th those are important. Um, however, if we are going to be rolling out uh, retrofit programming of any type, it should, uh, it should take into account climate resilience. We should be flood proofing, hail proofing, uh, wildfire proofing homes. Uh, and uh, we know how to, uh, how to build these now. We've done forensic analysis, for instance, from the Fort Mac fire. We know which homes burnt, which didn't. Uh, we know how to do a better job and how to retrofit. Uh, we, need to, we need to put that to work. Um, and then um, we need better recovery, uh, which is on us. We need better insurance programming in partnership with, uh, with the federal government and provinces uh, to make sure that disaster assistance and uh, insurance does not compete with each other, uh, but that we're actually um, ensuring that everybody ha has access to some sort of recovery, financial recovery instrument. Uh, that's not to sell insurance. That's saying we're not selling it to those that are at high, ri highest risk and we need we need some way of, of making sure they have that available to them. Um, but then the most important probably is an aligned view of risk. I mean, uh, climate data uh, and well, data is our forte. We underwrite, we price risk. That's what we do. Um, we've heard lots in the media about how, how bad our flood mapping is and how we need to improve it. Uh, we need to do a better job working together on modeling risk and sharing it and making sure that Canadians understand uh, the risk that they face whether it be from wildfire or flooding uh, anywhere in the country. Uh, and so uh, that's on, on us, uh, but also in partnership with all levels of government to make sure we're doing a better job sharing uh, an aligned view of, of what climate risk looks like. Adam, so I guess to reflect on, on all of this, uh, you've written about this um, in, in a COVID contest specifically, but these types of operations have been and have been for some time, one of the, the core missions of the Canadian forces. Um, but given the current trajectory that we're on right now uh, in terms of disaster response, I mean, how would you situate this within the other, other mission sets for the, for the forces um, to have the right kind of resources? Uh, how much of that is predicated upon the CAF being a force of last resort? Uh, and, and in your opinion, do you think the CAF still is the force of, of last resort? I ask that in part because I'm not so sure that that's uh, been the case in the last year and a half. Yeah, I mean, it's a big issue. I mean, I think the thing to remember is that the military in general in Canada, it does domestic duties, right? Uh, airspace, uh, monitoring control, um, also uh, the maritime domain, search and rescue, but largely it's expeditionary. It's meant uh, to be deployed and employed largely abroad. And again, militaries are designed, not all aspects, it's all built towards trying to have kinetic effect, which is actually to employ or potentially threaten to employ force to achieve uh, states uh, national interests or objectives and so the whole um, although it's a core mission about supporting governments and provision of services it's been the mindset of we are going to build what we need to do what the military does and if possible we will be able to carve out certain capacities to support domestic emergency operations and that has two aspects of it one is the concurrency risk but two is the fungibility of the assets that are being developed 
And I think that we're coming at a time that's very difficult for the military for a couple of reasons. Number one is personnel. I worry about multi-hatting. I worry about this idea of super calf, this idea that we can take a, an infantry soldier or a pilot or, or someone in the Navy and they can do all these different types of jobs. And I think that uh, we have personnel shortages, the general mentioned as well. We have mental health issues. And also I think the expectations are not there because it undermines the technical requirements of dealing with some of these climate change emergencies. The second one is procurement. We're going through massive procurement recapitalization of the Air Force and the Navy right now. That was basically, in my opinion, the reason why we have strong, secure and engaged. It was a moment to reflect, but it was really about creating policy scaffolding to legitimate uh, the massive increases in spending. And so while there was a little section about supporting government of services there, it was more just about the continuation. We haven't really thought about what happens when as needed tasks become baseline duties where the demand signal is just continuing to go up. And that hasn't been really figured out. And I think another underexplored area within the military is inter-service relationships. I think that if the military is increasingly asked to do these things and there's an expectation and willingness to do so, I think that may lead to challenges about who does that fall on? The Air Force has strategic capabilities for sure, but I think it's largely gonna be with the Canadian Army. And I think that may change some different dynamics in terms of command and control over force employment, force generation functions and things like that uh, between them. Um, and so I think where this leaves the military is a very tricky spot because I think there's a saying like, if you build it, they will come. And I think if you build capability um, that is specifically towards domestic operations, then it will be used. Um, and I think that there's a real challenge right now where um, not just within the military, but also within other levels of government about creating capability and capacity to deal with climate change emergencies and other domestic emergencies as well. And I think that that is gonna require really severe thinking uh, about the spending and, the, and, and, and having just in case and not just enough thinking about capability development. Um, because the military is being, in my opinion, seen as the de facto emergency response capability of, the, of, of Canada. And I don't think that, that we should just walk into that in terms of mission creep. I think that needs to be a political discussion with society that that is what we want our military to do. Do we want the military to transform and become about domestic emergencies and helping deal with climate change uh, in general? Or do we want the military to continue to have these other capabilities that, again, are largely uh, ex um, oriented outside and in terms of more kind of what you think about military capabilities. And the final one is, is if the military is gonna get more involved in society uh, domestically, then what is the interplay between the military and society and expectations um, around those type of relationships? Because again, while Canadians are broadly supportive of, of the Canadian Armed Forces supporting uh, other levels of government and doing certain domestic duties like search and rescue, it may change if the military is increasingly doing other things Again, I bring up the long-term care home because climate change and domestic emergency response is not about the environment. It is, but it's about communities and governments being stressed and over uh, exerted. And that's where the military goes in, the, the nursing homes, the healthcare system, potentially maybe the police one day. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, just to wrap up, uh, I read that the New York Police Department, 30% of the workforce was at home either with COVID or with um, uh, having to isolate. And I was thinking, what would happen if that happened to Toronto or the OPP? Like would the military then be like, okay, I guess we got to come in and maybe do some desk duties and get other police forces arranged and stuff. So again, provision of services is, is a very large growing gambit, not just the overall demand signal, but what's being asked of the military. And that multi-hatting super calf idea, I think can be uh, dangerous to the organization and also 
uh, government society preparing for a climate change uh, altered uh, world. Okay, so thank you, Laura. Thank you, General Smith. Uh, thank you, Adam, uh, for participating. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, David. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.